Welcome to the Salty Nerd Podcast. I am your host, the Salty Nerd. Tonight's episode is going to be all about the last week of movie news, anything that you might have missed uh, since Captain Marvel and Rotten Tomatoes has been casting a huge shadow on all the other cool things that have been going on. I am here to offer an alternative to the overwhelming amount of YouTube videos out there about Captain Marvel and uh, their their make-believe percentage score. Um, so I am joined tonight by the one and only proper Jeremy. What's up, dude? Hey, what's up? By the way, I, I did have a video on one of the... <laughs> I was one of the videos. <laughs> yes, you were. You are at fault because you are you uploaded probably one of the first, I think, right? Yeah, uh, one of them. And this is all this is all we're going to talk about uh, on this matter. Yeah, I got over... It, it's my highest viewed video now. Oh, my God. And it took me, like, less than two minutes to do. And that was it. And videos that I would I, I would spend hours on will, will get less than 200 views, less than 100. You know, like, yeah. I don't get it. I'm over it, man. I'm so over it. We're going to be moving on. We're going to be talking about real movie news. Absolutely. Going on. Because <laughs> I am fake uh, news. Yeah. Fake, <laughs> fake news of this Captain Marvel and his stupid percentage. Um, anyway, <laughs> if you can't tell people, I'm, I'm a little salty about, uh, the old Rotten Tomatoes nonsense. Um, but the first thing I wanted to thank you for coming on, by the way, I appreciate yeah. it. Uh, the first thing I wanted to talk about is it's kind of old news by now. It didn't really get much traction, not as much as I thought it would, but, um, army hammer, uh, apparently is in talks in final talks to take up the mantle or the cowl of Batman, which I thought was really interesting. Um, there was a lot of names being thrown out there as to who might uh, take over the role after Ben Affleck leaves. And um, I think it's cool. My personal favorite option was actually Army Hammer based off of his performance from Man from Uncle with uh, Henry Cavill. Have you seen that movie? I've never seen that movie. Okay. Man from Uncle is a freaking hilarious uh, spy type uh, espionage movie. It's kind of like a like a older James Bond where it still had that kind of campy humor to it. But, uh, army hammer and Henry Cavill, uh, have such good chemistry on screen. Uh, they're, they're two people who hate each other, but are forced to work t- with each other in order for the greater good. And, uh, their, their back and forth, their banter in a way really reminded me of what Batman and Superman would actually be like, because they don't really uh-huh. like each other very much, but they have to work with each other. And I felt like Army Hammer and Henry Cavill as those two characters would work perfectly for whatever direction DC moves on in the future. Um, if Cavill is still Superman, I think it would be perfect to have this guy uh, as his. Yeah, I wouldn't see why. <clears throat> I, I wouldn't see why Henry Cavill wouldn't wouldn't uh, reprise his role. I know he's had like contract issues, but he should still be uh, continuing and uh, rep- reprising his role. And I'm looking at. I'm looking at Army Hammer right now. I think he has a very good look for Batman. I'm just looking at the Wikipedia page. That that picture is I think very stunning. Like I I, I can be convinced that uh, that is uh, Bruce Wayne. Yeah, for sure. I, I mentioned somebody on Twitter. I think um, that he's the perfect mixture between a Bale and a Affleck. So Affleck mm-hmm. was absolutely a huge hulking figure. He was a pretty big dude, big barrel chested, six foot somewhat tall. Whereas Bale was a little bit more thinner, a little bit more agile, I think Army Hammer kind of fits right in the middle, where he's a very tall guy, uh, well-built, especially if he starts working out for the role, but he still has that ability to be agile and kind of uh, you know, a, a ninja-type Batman. Oh, I can believe it. 
And I'm I'm really looking forward to this Matt Reeves version of Batman because I, they claim that they're going to be moving towards the detective, more noir-esque style of Batman. Which oh, is, so I, I've heard. I've been begging for that. I really hope they go full bore on the, the world's greatest detective aspect of the character because I don't think we've ever seen that on screen. Uh, they, they have little hints of it. Bale had some hints in uh, The Dark Knight. Uh, where he was uh, kind of doing the fingerprint thing with the bullet, but uh, to really dive into the the capabilities of a, of a genius to crack a case, like that's what I want to see. Oh yeah, absolutely. I've heard that that is a uh, hugely uh, underrated and hidden element in uh, in the comics. Yeah, for sure. So I'm looking forward to that. I'm glad that he's uh, in talks at least to be. Um taking up that mantle. I hope he does well. Uh, I know yeah, recently... Absolutely. Uh, one thing that I uh, really would like to see is kind of a period piece of Batman. What era are you thinking? The way the comic books had originally intended. Like the 1930s? Mm-hmm. Dude. I think that'd be interesting. I think that's where the um, Kevin Conroy and Mark Hamill uh, Batman animated series, which I love, that was, I think, was set in like a futuristic type 1930s environment, which was perfect for Batman. And I've always wanted to see them uh, do that on screen. Yeah, that'd be cool. But I was thinking, like, what exactly, what exactly uh, were the weapons like in in that time? Because there's always all these futuristic weapons, but you know, I'm wondering, like, is that really what they had envisioned in the 1930s? I'm just, I'm not entirely sure of that. Yeah. Uh, Matt. Hey, Matt. What's up, man? He's in the comments. He said, no way Army Hammer is going to be Batman. I'd place money on it. Why doesn't he just come in? Uh, Matt, do you leave a comment? Let me know if you have time or if you're capable. I'll, I'll send you an invite real quick. Well, uh, does he work nights? I don't know. I don't know. But I'm actually planning on doing a interview with Matt because he's got some really knowledgeable background with uh, Hollywood and whatnot. So I, I asked him if you'd be interested in doing an interview so that we can get to know Matt a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, that'd be cool. I think it'd be fun. We'll see what he says. I'll, uh, Matt, I'm going to drop you an invite real quick. And uh, if you can come in, by all means, hop in. I really wish he would join us on the uh, Goonies live stream. Oh, Jesus. I'm going to tear that movie apart. You have no idea. You're gonna be, the, the odds will be stacked against you. Oh, I know. I am going to die the villain on that, whatever stream that is. But... Uh, Oh, well. Are the Goonies good enough? Goonies are terrible. That movie's a horrible thing. <laughs> Kids were so illogical, so stupid with their dumb humor and their dumb comments. <laughs> you, you sound like a grumpy old man on this. Yeah, I'm a grumpy old man. <laughs> All right, Matt said he might be able to hop in in a few, so cool. All right, uh, Matt, I just sent you a DM on Twitter uh, with the invite, so if you can use it, go ahead. Um, next up on the topic list, we'll talk about Army Hammer in a little bit. Um, Alita, Battle Angel, Jeremy, or Justin. I guess, am I calling you Justin or Jeremy? Jeremy. That, Jeremy. Now you just doxed me again. Oh, God damn it. Sorry. No, no, it's okay. I've been doxed for the longest <laughs> time. So, uh, Proper Jeremy, you haven't seen this movie yet, have you? Um, no, I have not. Okay. I want you, to. You have convinced me. You said you I'm cried like, in the movie theaters. I did not, but I did. I did do a fist pump. Like during one scene, I was like, yes. <laughs> and that rarely ever happens. Uh, there was a, I think it was probably in my personal opinion, the best use of the F bomb in a PG 13 movie ever. Like really 
Yes, I hands down. I've never heard the F word used in such a perfect way in a PG-13 movie before. Like Deadpool's up there, but Deadpool's rated R, so it's a different category. There's a different tier. When you can manage to make the F word actually meaningful in a PG-13 movie, you've done something special. And Yeah, this, because you're only allowed one. Exactly. There's only one. you got to make it count. And these people, oh my God, did they make it count. And uh, so that uh, I love those moments. Uh, <laughs> you know, the only oh, there was like one movie where there was uh, there it was like a relationship or something, and then uh, one of them just said to the other, "Like, go fuck yourself." And uh, <laughs> like, <laughs> just it's just like it, it, if it comes in a meaningful moment, you know, I understand. But like, you know, you see all these movies where just people just swear and they just you know instead of like actually talking. You know, yeah. No, yeah, have you really seen one of those movies? Just like, can you like go ten seconds without saying the f word or something? Yeah, yeah those movies get tiresome, uh, especially if they're not like in the comedic way. Like, I mean, yeah. uh, it, I want to say Boondock Saints. Have you ever seen Boondock Saints? Uh, no. <laughs> that movie, I think somebody might be able to correct me on this. It might be, it might go to Quentin Tarantino, but I believe. No, I don't think so. I believe Boondant Saints, Saints uh, has the most F-words used in the movie. It's literally every couple of seconds. But because of the way it's used and because it's comedic effect, it, uh, it tends to not drive me crazy, whereas other movies, you're kind of like, oh, my God, are you done saying the F-word yet? Like, we get it. You know how to use that word. So what? But movies like, uh, like oh, God, what's the movie from Quentin Tarantino? Um, Django Unchained. Yeah. You can, it's it's well used. Twin, uh, Quentin Tarantino knows how to use that word properly. Mm-hmm. Uh, that to him, but yeah, sometimes it could be over overwhelming. Yeah, uh, it's it's just a, a barrage of swear words. Yeah, it it's just hard, makes but... it uh, distasteful in in a, in a way that is not very pleasant. Yeah. Well, Lita Battle Angel did not have that problem. They used that one card perfectly. And, uh, I All right. Been... I look forward to that moment. I consider this a spoiler, so thank you, Salty, for oh, ruining the moment. When you see it, you're going to be like, oh my god, he's right. That was awesome. <laughs> yeah, but now my opinion is going to be affected. Uh, this movie's awesome. That's your opinion. <laughs> <laughs> no, Not yet. The, the character, like, it's hard. Somebody I was watching, uh, Shadowversity uh, did a video on it, and um, I, I like his content. He doesn't normally do movie reviews. He's usually like a a medieval type commentator where he'll talk about um, movies that are set in medieval times, whether or not they're accurate. So he, he doesn't often do reviews per se, but he actually did one for Alita. And he mentioned something that I totally agree with how the character was so likable and kind hearted during most of the movie. But then also she had this other, this duality where she could be a total kick-ass action hero and do all these crazy stunts and flip around and fight people and, and seem to get enjoyment out of the, uh, out of the tension and the anger and fighting. But then a couple minutes later, be this super sweet person that you would like want to hang out with and have a drink, you know? And it's, yeah. it's, it's not often that the studios can kind of mesh those two types of characters, but I think uh, James Cameron and Robert Rodriguez did a bang up job on that. Uh, this character immediately right out of the gate, super likable. You just kind of want to like, hang out with her and, and show her around like, Hey, let's go out and go have some fun. Like she's just a super genuinely nice person throughout the entire movie. But then when shit hits the fan, 
she goes to town and she's not afraid of a fight, which is it's a, such a cool character. You're going to love it. I can't wait for you to see it. We could talk about it more. Awesome. Well, I've but, seen it. So Hey, Matt, what's up, dude? <laughs> not much, man. How are you doing? Doing good. Thanks for having me on. Of course. Thanks for coming. Looking forward to our interview uh, this week or next week, hopefully. Definitely. Uh, so, yeah, we were talking about Alita Battle Angel. Did you want to add anything to that? I was really pleasantly surprised by this movie. I liked it a lot. Like, it's not a perfect movie by any means. Um, there are some writing issues, small small issues, I'd say, with, with the film. But overall, I felt like it was a fun movie, which is basically what you want when you go to the theater. You know what yeah, I mean? exactly. So the, I, I, really, I really enjoyed it. The entertainment value is definitely up there as far as like, yeah, you're right. There are some, some of the acting was a little bit, uh, like they had some young actors in there that were unpolished. Uh, well, you know, like the whole love story thing was a little weak. I felt I, I, it, Alita was one of these movies where they tried to do so much within a constrained time period where I felt like it, if it just had like another hour to breathe, a lot of this stuff could have been well fleshed out, but a lot of their world building was very expertly done. Like they were able to establish a lot of stuff with like a few lines of dialogue and then just get to the meat of the story. Uh, Cosmonaut variety hour actually did like a video today uh, talking about the issues with the film. It was just a quick four minute video and overall he liked the movie, but he hammered on some points, which, you know, legitimately like it had these issues, but I feel like it, they weren't issues that took you out of the film. They didn't suspend your, they didn't get rid of your suspension of disbelief. So, you know, that makes it so much more enjoyable than a movie like say the last Jedi where its issues are so blatantly bad that they actually pull you out of the movie and ruin your enjoyment of it. Yeah. That's a, that's a big difference between something like Alita and something like the last Jedi where the writing issues with Alita are forgivable because they don't, pull you out of the film. Like they keep your suspension of disbelief going and that's in stark contrast to a very badly made movie. Such yeah. as the last Jedi. And it was just uh, to get a, a different point of view. Black Angus had tweeted out his video review where he actually didn't like the movie at all. He thought it was very uh, Michael Bay for the action was too busy. Couldn't follow it, which I, I kind of disagree with that. I really liked it. I saw it in 3d, which I normally don't see movies in 3d. Cause I'm not a huge fan of that uh, visually, but I wanted to see this in its full experience and it actually worked for me. I thought the action was really good. Um, he brought out a very interesting point that, and I commend him for, for kind of saying this out loud and talking to all of us about this, but there was some kind of a, some kind of a, almost like a bias going into this movie that the, the very fact that there was no blatant uh, identity politics in the film itself made us all enjoy it more than we normally would, say, if we were to just judge this movie off of its merits. Like you said, there's some writing issues. Some of the acting was a little weak. Maybe some of the action CGI could have done better. But we we let that all go because there was no political bias in the film. What do you think about that idea? Well, there were some class issues that were on display in the film, you know, the the poor versus the rich type thing. Um, <clears throat> but I mean, that's just, that's typical Cameron for you. And that stuff was also in the source material. Yeah. Um, I think that one of the things that impressed me the most, and that's why I'm not surprised that it came from James Cameron is that, you know, you had a strong female character at the lead of this movie mm-hmm. that, you know, you didn't need to, 
bash men in order to come off as strong. She was strong just on her own merit. And I, th- I actually think that the action in the movie was very well done, like you, I saw it in uh, 3D IMAX. Um, but Robert Rodriguez, you know, if you look at his style, like I've been following his stuff since El Mariachi, and he's always been a very competent action director. Um, and his, um, his, his talents in that regard have really expanded um, over the years. Because, like, you know, if you look at his Spy Kids films, like they're, they're goofy and they're not well made, but they were cheap and they made a lot of money. Um, and when you see that he, when, when he takes the source material seriously and he's trying to actually make a, you know, big sweeping, um, movie with, you know, really serious action scenes in it, he does a very good job. So I was, I was very impressed with the action. It was all very clear. Uh, you knew what was happening. Uh, if anything, I would say that towards the end, Alita just got a little bit overpowered, in terms of, you know, there not being much at stake for her, but they kind of fixed that with the emotional attachment to uh, right. you know, her, her love interest. So, you know, maybe she couldn't be harmed, but he still could. And so like the audience still had something invested in, you know, her journey uh, there. So, you know, it, it was a well-made movie and, and that's so rare nowadays that uh, it, it's kind of sad that, that's all it takes to, you know, make people like a film is that like, it's just not terrible, you know, yeah. that's, it's a low standard, but I mean, it, it, I, I like that movie. I it knocked it out of the park for me. Um, in the comments here, Cybersonic, what's up, dude. Thanks for joining us. He said, what, how was the uncanny Valley? The commercials made it look a bit off to me, which I agree looking at it on your cell phone or maybe on the TV and you see a commercial, uh, the CGI does look a little weird. Like you're kind of looking at it and you're like, that doesn't, and of course those giant eyes don't help. Um, but for me being in actually at the Dolby theater, full giant screen in 3d, I thought it looked really, really well done. Um, especially since Cameron's got so much, uh, expertise in this, in this field with avatar being a, a huge success with CGI characters. Um, I felt like Alita, being one of the only fully CGI, I think the only thing that wasn't... No, her face was CGI. Yeah, everything about her was CGI. The other characters, uh, the actors' faces were all real, but they had the CGI cybernetic bodies, which uh, at times could look a little re- weird, but I think they pulled it off pretty well. Some of the some of the bigger characters, like the main bad guy, that really tall dude, he's like 17 feet tall, that obviously looked heavily, heavily CGI, a little fake. That's kind of to be expected for a character of that type, you're not looking for a lot of reality in a giant, you know, huge cybernetic being jumping around 15 feet and slamming through walls and stuff. Yeah. I don't think the uncanny Valley was an issue in this. Like if anything, I mean, it's, if you see, watch a Pixar animated movie, it's like the exact same experience. It's just you within the first few seconds, you kind of accept it for what it is and then you move on. Yeah. All right, so uh, anything to add about Alita before we move on to the next uh, topic? Just go see it. It's yeah, I'd say go see it. Support this movie, hopefully. God, cross your fingers we can get a sequel. Um, the, <laughs> the next thing I wanted to talk about was the Twilight Zone dropped a trailer a couple days ago, I think. Um, we've uh, got some interesting screenshots that I took uh, from the trailer. We've got one of my favorite actors from Parks and Rec. Uh, I can't remember the guy's Adam actual. Adam Scott. Adam Scott, he's going to be, I think, a main player in this uh, TV show, which I'm looking forward to. He's got a great presence on screen, and it's hosted by Jordan Peele, 
I'm not sure how much he had to do with the production or the storytelling of it, but he's the, the executive producer and showrunner, I think. Okay, cool. Excellent. So he's got an eye for that horror. Uh, he's proven himself uh, with, uh, uh, what is it? Get out. Uh, that was a huge hit. Uh, people love that movie. So hopefully he's, he's got a lot to live up to though. I don't know how many of you guys have watched uh, black mirror, but I love that show. I think it does the, this kind of creepy, scary, what if scenarios uh, moving into the future. Um, I think that show does it really, really well. And I think Twilight Zone is going to have to live up to its own name because it was such a huge hit from back in the day. Uh, I can't remember when it actually came out. Was it the 50s? Do you remember, Matt? Yes, 50s, I believe so, yeah. Okay, so in the 50s, Twilight Zone, I mean, my parents watched it. They grew up on it. And even today when somebody says Twilight Zone, it's still in the cultural uh, vocabulary. So I think the show has a lot to live up to, but I'm hoping it's going to be really, really good. I just find it interesting that there's this resurgence in anthology style shows right now where for the longest time, anthology shows just, you know, they went out of favor and they stopped being made. And now it's like every show, it seems, is going the anthology route. So, yeah, so it's it w- could be interesting when you say anthology. What exactly do you mean? You mean just separated from each story like it's not connected? Yeah, it's not a serialized show. There are no consistent characters throughout. Like uh, the uh, American Horror Story, I think, was kind of the start of this like resurgence in anthology shows because like the original um, the original Twilight Zone is considered an anthology show where it just basically had standalone episodes, like you know, uh, in in every season. Every season was just a string of standalone episodes, and no the seasons didn't really connect to each other outside of the basic theme of the show. So uh, like you have an anthology show like American horror story where each season uh, kind of encompasses a serialized story, but the seasons are, aren't connected or very loosely connected to each other. So you have the same actors playing different characters. Uh, You have different, uh, you know, locations, different themes and um, you know, like uh Castle Rock is another example of an anthology show. They just announced the the sequel follow-up series to The Haunting of uh, Hill House on Netflix, and they announced that's going to be an anthology. So season two is going to be completely different with different characters and a different setting. And uh, that's basically what an anthology is. It's basically just a, a series of shows that are loosely connected by a theme, but they don't necessarily share the same characters carrying over yeah. from season to season. Yeah, there was an interesting episode from Black Mirror, now that you're talking about it, I remember, um, where they had one episode that basically tied together all the other episodes in that season, where the stories were separated, they didn't have any of the same characters, but there was this one common thread, and it was revealed, I think it might have been the season finale, where they had that museum, the Museum of Strange Artifacts, and it turns out that all those artifacts in the museum were actually from episodes of uh, previous episodes of that season so it, it kind of world build a little bit it kind of took it away from that anthology aspect it kind of said hey there's a uh, there's a common thread among these and this is actually all happening in the same universe which i thought was kind of a cool thing yeah the final season of american horror story kind of did that too where it took elements from previous seasons and kind of combined them so like you know <clears throat> the the anthology format gives you a lot of leeway to do things like that because you can do stuff that has no connection whatsoever. And then you can do stuff that kind of ties into other seasons. So I think that's one of the reasons why it's so popular is because you don't have to keep track of continuity. I was just (laughs) about to ask you, I'm like, do you think that's a crutch that some new uh, screenwriters are leaning on to say, Hey, you know what? We don't really have to worry about 
connecting all these different storylines and keeping these characters consistent. If we just do anthology ones, we can just write whatever we want. I don't think it, it's necessarily a crutch. I think that, yeah, it's easier to do an anthology series like that. I mean, in some ways it can be more difficult because you have to tell a story within a, a constrained period of time. Um, but it, it basically just gives the writers a lot more freedom to explore different ideas, different characters and things like that. So I wouldn't necessarily call it a crutch, but I do think that it's easier to write an anthology show than something like season 12 of the Simpsons or you know something like that, where you have all this, you know, stuff that came before it that you have to keep in mind when you're you know, writing your new thing. Right on. Uh, we haven't heard from you in a minute. Proper Jeremy. Oh, he muted himself. You got anything to add PJ? You still there? Or are you ditching us? Oh man, I think he ditched us. Okay. All right. We'll move on. <laughs> he couldn't handle my, uh, my explanations. <laughs> he had to check out. Uh, I think he, well, he warned me before. He's like, I'm not stuff. I'm like, it's all right, man. We're just going to go and chill. Um, so the next thing I wanted to talk about moving on from, oh, CBS All Access is the one that has um, Twilight Zone. So if anybody actually, like me, has CBS All Access, this will just be another thing, another excuse for if you don't like Star Trek Discovery, you can keep your subscription just to watch the Twilight Zone. Uh, I hear so many things about Discovery. I'm My wife and I watch it, um, like, if we can on Thursday nights, but if we don't catch it, then we'll watch it on the weekend. But we're, I was really not a huge fan of season one. Um, I watched it along with her. She enjoyed it cause she's not a super fan like we are. Um, and then the season two, I think is, is moving back a little bit slowly, slowly moving back towards classic Trek. It's like a, it's like trying to move the Titanic getting out of the way of the iceberg. Yeah. I have a, I have a lot of mixed feelings about discovery. I feel like they squandered a massive opportunity in their first season. Yeah, and um, because basically I thought where they were going with this was that the spore drive thing for Discovery was going to jump them into you know basically alternate timelines of the Star Trek universe, and they jumped into the mirror universe at the mid-season finale uh, of the first season. And I was like, oh wow, this is cool, and I thought that they were basically going to be lost. So they would every time they would jump, they would go into like a different timeline, and that would actually free them up. Because they could have said, well, the discovery originated from an alternate timeline. And so, like, it can be its own thing as we jump into these different alternate timelines. We don't have to worry about continuity or anything like that. We can just kind of go in our own way. And I thought that's what they were going to do until the end of the first season where it was obvious they weren't doing that. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, And that really disappointed me because I felt like that just showed a complete lack of direction. But that's... It's kind of par for the course for Akiva Goldsman and Alex Kurtzman, where they just, you know, they're terrible writers. And like they're, they're guys, they have good ideas, but their execution of these ideas are always awful. Yeah. Um, so I guess I shouldn't have been surprised. I'm always very hopeful when it comes to Star Trek stuff, but then I just always get let down. Um, but, there was quite a bit of salt about that show, especially with uh, with the changes that they made with the Klingons and stuff. I know a lot of people, oh, they look like orcs. It doesn't look like a real Klingon. Where I mean, and I've been watching Star Trek since I was a little, little kid. I watched The Next Generation with my dad. I watched uh, all, uh, was it Voyager? I watched a little bit of Deep Space Nine. I watched Enterprise. Like, I've been keeping up with this series, and I'm always looking forward to the new things that they try out. Everything looks a little bit different in each each uh, show. There, there's a reason for that. 
you know, I, I wrote a whole series of articles explaining the reason for these changes. Yes, I need to read those before I do your interview because that was a, a lot of work. I started reading the first uh, part. Maybe we should move on so we don't spoil. Unless you want to talk about your article, you can go ahead. But I, I, I feel like I should read it first. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, I won't, I won't go deep into it, but I, I wrote a series of articles on medium.com that kind of basically covers the, the systemic mismanagement of the Star Trek franchise dating back to, I'd say it, it, it started once Viacom basically bought out uh, Gulf Western and acquired Paramount Studios and the Star Trek franchise back in, I believe it was 93, possibly 94. Um, but ever since then, there's just been like a terrible mismanagement of the franchise. And it's all been based around the licensing for Star Trek, because basically uh, Star Trek's parent company, formerly Viacom, now CBS Studios, um, they make anywhere from 50 to 80 percent of their licensing revenue off of Star Trek. It's like their biggest licensing property. And so in order to avoid brand confusion, uh, with each series, they necessitate that it be distinct enough from previous series that, you, you know, they can sell an individual license without stepping on the licenses that they currently oh, already have out there. So they necessitate that certain things be changed. Like, for instance, the Klingons for Discovery, the, the decision to make them look the way that they do is, number one, uh, basically CBS's Consumer Products Division mandated that they had to not only be different from the Klingons in the original series, but the Klingons from all the next generation style series like DS9 Voyager uh-huh. and Enterprise. And they, they also had to be distinct from the J.J. Abrams Klingons because those are all separate licenses that they've already you know sold out to other companies. And so Brian Fuller you know, in his vision, he was like, well, if we have to change the Klingons, we might as well really change them. And his kind of original concept for Discovery was that it was going to be transitionary in nature, which means that he was going to have it start off as kind of like its own thing, and then eventually transition to more of the 60s aesthetic that we saw in the original series. And Les Moonves kind of came in, and he was like, well, I don't want these to get confused with our current licenses so just make them like super alien you know like like he had a big mandate where he basically said like these can't look like the ones that we got already got because Les movies like he didn't really care about star trek he didn't really understand it so he uh basically laid out this mandate and after fuller got fired uh the people who were left holding the reins of discovery basically said like well you know the big boss wants us to change these so we might as well just you know, make these big changes so that at a glance, they're distinct enough from all the other Klingons that were currently licensed out where they can stand on their own. And that's basically been the basis for every creative decision on discovery is that they've made it, they have to make it distinct enough from all the other existing Star Trek licenses to stand on its own so that CBS can make more money off of it. Right. So I, that makes all that makes a lot of sense now that you say it and put it out like that. Um, so I I think the question a lot of people have one that is always in my mind is why did they decide to make this show a prequel instead of uh, doing something that's past Voyager so that the aesthetic of the new type of ships and with all the fancy new equipment and tech 
will match more along with what a future Star Trek would be instead of setting it past. Well, originally, Brian Fuller's concept was that Discovery was going to be an anthology show. You know, we just talked about anthologies. So his, his vision was that it would start off as a prequel to the original series, and then it would go across the original series timeline and then the Next Generation timeline, and eventually... Uh, it would get into the future beyond uh, the next generation and kind of cross multiple different time periods within the Trek universe. And when he pitched that to the CBS brass, they kind of balked at it. They were like, well, you know, we're not really sure we want to do an anthology. um, So why don't you just do your first season, you know, as the prequel that you wanted to do it. And if it's a hit, we'll let you go forward with this anthology idea. And if it turns out to be problematic, we can just stick with, you know, this prequel and as like, you know, the, the full series. Yeah. And so he basically had to, Brian Fuller had to rework his vision for discovery to make the first season both kind of standalone, but also set the stage for a continuing series. If, if it just, yeah. it was decided to go that route and I, th- I honestly think it was a mistake to, to do that be- because basically now you have the original series, uh, the J.J. Abrams movies, and uh, Discovery kind of overstepping the same timelines. And that just creates even more um, kind of confusion on the part of you know, the licensing department because they're like, well, because we have three different properties covering the same time periods, they still need to be distinct enough. There's somebody. There's somebody behind you that might be wanting to get your attention. <laughs> hey, babe. Hi. Uh, I'm just doing a podcast. Okay, I don't want to interrupt. All right. I'll be there soon. No, that's fine. All right. Okay. Hi. 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 <laughs> that was uh, my girlfriend. Oh. Uh, okay, well, by so, the way, my name is Proper Jeremy. Nice to meet you, Matthew. Nice to meet you, PJ. Okay then. <laughs> yeah, community's coming together. So we'll move on for Star Trek. Star Trek can be its own gigantic podcast, and I have two other guys. Um, Matt Vader, he's been itching to talk about Star Trek, so maybe I'll have you guys all on one day. We can. Yeah, it might help if you read my uh, article series. Yes, I, I really, I really dive deep into the history of of Trek and then like all the crazy corporate like sabotaging of the franchise, and it's it's pretty interesting once you get down into the weeds. It's on my list. I will check it out. I'll try and uh, read through it before I do your interview, so I'm I'm familiar with your work. Uh, the next uh, pot, uh, the next subject that I wanted to talk about was J.J. Abrams' comments about the Last Jedi affecting Episode Nine. Um, oh, I, I, <laughs> we don't have to spend all night on this, but I did want to mention it. Uh, I tweeted out basically. Basically, my thoughts are: this guy's not going to bash Lucasfilm, Ryan Johnson, Kathleen Kennedy. He's not going to do anything to upset the status quo on his end. These are still his employee employers. Uh, he has to play nice. He's a professional director. He's not going to talk bad about them. So his answer where he says, I think every movie, this is a quote from him. I think every movie is its own movie. And obviously this is a trilogy. So that obviously is a very contradictory kind of a sentence, but I would want to say that he's trying to separate himself from the last Jedi because he knows that it has upset um, a good amount of fans out in the, in the, the community, uh, but he wants, he knows he has to try and use that film to tie up episode nine in a full, in a nice little bow, tie up the story and move forward. Uh, now JJ Abrams 
is known for his mystery boxes. He is not known for tying things up in a nice little bow. Nothing that he's done so far from Lost to Cloverfield has ever been tied up and well, like satisfying endings for people. Like people are usually kind of left wanting. So that's a legitimate worry with, uh, with this direction. But I, I do personally think that he sincerely wants to make a good movie that most of the people will enjoy. I think out of all his projects that he's done, that's typically people are like, yeah, I liked it. I had some issues with it, but all overall it was enjoyable. Even with the Star Trek uh, movies that he did, uh, the first one particularly, in general, I think it was well-received. It was definitely different, more of an action uh, than it was actual classic Trek. But um, I, I just I, I feel for the guy because he's really in a hard spot right now. He's, he's, uh, I, I do not envy him. I would not want to be him in this situation. I'm surprised that he even took the job in the first place because from what I understand, after Episode 7 was done, he wanted to walk away and just be an executive producer and be done. Well, the the reason I say that his quote is a blatant lie is basically it's from my understanding of his operations during the the making of the Star Trek films. Because first of all, he flat out lied about all everything regarding Into Darkness before that movie was released. Um, So he has a, a pattern of basically misrepresenting the truth when it comes to the films that he works on. But secondly, um, you know, when he was making the Star Trek films, he was very, very, um, I wouldn't say concerned, but he was aware of what the franchise's fan base wanted or was thinking about. So like, you know, he, he does pay attention to the fans um, and he, the 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 things that the fans kind of want or are expecting are things that he uses to play off of. So when it came to Star Wars, you know, like he wanted to give everyone the nostalgia. Mm-hmm. And so he, he knew what to expect from that. Um, but it basically comes down to he knows about the backlash with The Last Jedi. Right. And the whole reason they brought him back was because of the that backlash and, and the solo disappointment. So, you know, they wanted him to come back and write the ship. And he he knows exactly what the issues are that The Last Jedi created. So the, this idea that it didn't have any influence on Episode Nine is complete buckus. It's, it's yeah. false. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely, I mean, it's. I think it's. It, you're right. <laughs> I'm stumbling over my own words. Uh, you're right. It is a lie. I I think I don't think he had a choice though. Do you think he had a like? He's not going to sit there and say, "Oh yeah, totally." No, the last Jedi really caused a bunch of trouble for me, and I had to try and figure out how I was going to do this. And and uh, that would be confirming uh, the argument of the fans have that the last Jedi was bad, which would be against what the studio wants people to believe. Well, so you know, he, he definitely had a choice. Um, but if if you if you kind of pay attention to what's going on in Hollywood, so first of all, I'm pretty sure that bad robot had some type of of uh, point investment with with uh, the new star wars so disney gave them basically you know a um like a percentage of the profits from the star wars movies just like paramount did with with star trek um but if you're paying attention to what's going on in hollywood right now you'll know that bad robots actually they're ending their development deal with um paramount and they're going over to Disney, where Disney's offering them an even bigger development deal. So I think part of the thing was, is, is probably Bob Iger went to J.J. Abrams and said, hey, we're in trouble with Star Wars. We need you to come back. 
And if you do, we promise that we'll give you the sweetheart development deal um, for coming in and helping us out. And JJ was probably like, well, I really don't want to be involved, but you know, if you give me like $60 million to move my company <laughs> to your studio, yeah, yeah. sure. Okay. I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll go and do it. Back so, up the money truck to his driveway and say, here you go. <laughs> pretty much. I mean, it was basically like a soft bribe type situation where it was, it was like, Hey, we'll, we'll set up your, your studio or your company at our studio. And if you come back and fix things for us, cause I know that I think part of the reason JJ stepped away after um, the force awakens was because he didn't get along with Kathleen Kennedy. So he was more like, well, you know, I'd rather just sit back and collect the paycheck and you guys have my outlines, you go off and do your thing and you can attach my name to the movies, but I don't want to work with you anymore. Yeah. And I think that, you know, uh, Kathleen Kennedy was kind of hoping that 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 was the last she saw of JJ Abrams, but after the debacle with the last Jedi and solo, you know, Iger, was the one who chose to bring him back into the fold. And Kennedy is just basically doing her producer thing and trying to make sure that JJ has everything he needs to make episode nine a hit. Mm-hmm. So Do you think that, that's my take on it. I, I have one question. Uh, do either of you remember if JJ was announced to be the director of, uh, and writer of episode nine before or after the last Jedi came out? It was after um, because basically when, uh, the Last Jedi was in development. Uh, Colin Trevorrow, uh, the guy who did uh, mm-hmm. the Lost World or the, the new no uh, Jurassic World, yeah, Jurassic World. He was the one who was hired to uh, do the the third movie or episode yeah, episode nine. nine. Yeah, and then he got fired. Mm-hmm. And- was that announced uh, before uh, the Last Jedi came out? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I'm kind of a fan of Colin uh, only because of his uh, interactions uh, with fans on Twitter. He's always very nice to people. Uh, from what I can yeah, see. he's a nice guy. He's not uh, a good filmmaker. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, I, but, but, I mean, at least he's not a, you know, at least he's not a bonehead about it. He doesn't, you know, blame people for not liking his movies. <laughs> he takes criticisms pretty well, I mean, from what I yeah. understand. And he, you know, he's not he's not saying he's perfect like Ryan Johnson does. But I'm a fan of his. I like his work. I like Jurassic World. I, I I have a soft spot for Jurassic Park, so I'm a little biased on this. I'll admit that right off the bat. Chill. Jurassic, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Jurassic World. I wish I was getting paid by Universal. Uh, Jurassic World <laughs> was basically a carbon copy of Jurassic Park, just updated for the new generation, which I kind of feel like is the same thing that JJ did with uh, the Force Awakens. It was a New Hope rehashed. Uh, for the new generation. It's also another Kathleen Kennedy produced movie. Yeah, Jurassic World or Jurassic Park? Well, all of them. Jurassic World too. She's still attached to that? Oh, yeah. She was the one who hired Trevorrow to to make the first one and uh, stuff like that. I thought that was Frank Marshall. Well, well, he's her husband, and so, like, they're a producing team. Right. Basically, if you have one, you get the other. She had a heavy hand in, uh, a heavy hand as a producer in, uh, uh, Jurassic Park, the very first one with Steven Spielberg. That was when they were still uh, working as a team together. I'm not, I didn't realize that she was still heavily attached to the Jurassic World, too. Oh, yeah. She was the one who basically got that off the ground. She was the one who hired Colin Trevorrow. That's why he got his job on Star Wars was because of her. So from what was not that great. Kester said in the comment, I will disagree with you, sir. It had some problems, but it was entertaining. <laughs> uh, I like the first Jurassic World. I didn't see the second one, but I heard that was kind of like, eh. 
But to be fair, I was actually watching the first Jurassic World in theaters with my kid brother. So, yeah, yeah. I can't talk talk too much about this because, like I said, I have a huge soft spot. Jurassic Park was the first movie that my father took me to see, and I've been in love with that franchise uh, ever since. And you were still okay with moments like Alan, Alan, yeah, goofy things like that. I know it was goofy. I understand that none of these movies are perfect. I don't think Jurassic World 3 especially is probably one of my least favorites. Um, I've read both the books also, and the books are, are so, so different from the actual films. Oh yeah, definitely. But, um, I, I enjoy seeing the dinosaurs on screen. I'm not asking for a lot. I'm not asking for, you know, there's no real heavy mythology to follow like there is with star Wars. So when they change things up a little bit, I'm kind of like, okay, I'll roll with it. Um, the com- some of the moments in fallen kingdom that I didn't like too much were some of the more comedic moments that they tried to go for with, um, uh, with Owen Grady, when he was trying to run away from the lava, he was doing that weird, like, I'm half numb. It looked like an Ace Ventura skit. It was kind of weird. Like, I'll admit, there's some problems with that movie, and the plot is a little weird. So salty. You you, you like Fallen Kingdom, but you hate Goonies? I think, that there, I think there's something questionable going on here. Fallen Kingdom did not have any stupid kids with their stupid little chatter teeth things hucking off of things with, like, Batman and shit. Like, no. Goonies is a whole they other... Had a, they had a clone child who somehow did terrible stuff with dinosaurs. If you can clone dinosaurs, why is it unbelievable to clone a child? Not unbelievable. It's just that there are kids in that movie. There's one kid who does <laughs> one, one dumb thing. The rest of the time she's running for her life. One dumb thing. Okay. <laughs> Wait. Oh, so the boy doesn't do any dumb things. What boy? The, the boy in the movie. There, there's a kid. There's like two kids in Jurassic park. In Jurassic Park. Okay, so here, all right. If we're going to talk about this, fine. We're going to freaking talk. I, I, th- I thought that's what that's what we were talking about. <laughs> no, I'll, I'll. Okay, this is there, my... there were two kids in the first. The first uh, was that not what we were talking World. about? No, we're, we're talking about, about the, Fallen, the Kingdom. Fallen Kingdom, the sequel. Oh, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Never mind. I thought you were talking about the first Jurassic Park movie. I was like, yeah, what? The kids were replaced by a le- lesbian veterinarian and a really annoying IT guy for some reason decided to go with them on the island yeah i mean oh yeah i know movies aren't perfect i never said they were um (laughs) no my thing with kids the thing with kids if i kind of explained this in my uh temple of doom stream that i did with drunk 3po uh (laughs) the thing with the kids so the the kids in the first movie uh throughout the entire film they are 100 percent reliant on the adults in the movie to be alive so every time they get into a situation they would be dead if it wasn't for an adult to come and save them uh same thing goes even for uh fallen kingdom uh, that little girl would have been dead if owen grady didn't show her life like these kids aren't superhuman they're not doing things that are are out of the realm of possibility for children when I see movies like the Goonies and movies like Temple of Doom, where short round is karate chopping seven fully grown men and they all go bouncing back like a bunch of bumbling idiots, that is a suspension of disbelief that I cannot hang out with. The same thing goes for Goonies. These bunch of kids are going after these hardened criminals with firearms and weapons, and they're winning in a freaking fist fight. Like, yeah, no, yeah that's our hidden treasure. Yeah, like, well, this is a movie with, I don't have a problem with the characters. I have a problem with the basic uh, plot holes that could be filled with deleted scenes. You know, they were, like, with with the whole map. Uh, 
that oh, was uh, like like why is that conveniently in, in their parents' basement uh, or I mean attic, whatever cross space yeah. thing. I have I have and a then they go, and then they, because, uh, it, they just, because uh, it was from the museum that his father worked at or the library or whatever. And it just happened to have a pirate ship in Oregon and it just it was still just, floating after like a hundred years. Oh no, but there's a deleted scene where uh somebody's like uh, burning their map, like some bullies, I don't know, and then they run just, away oh, and great. then uh I want to but mention the, the comments. Thing I is, uh, when it comes to Goonies, is that everything in that movie is set up? It, it, it's all established. So you, you know, as 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 fa- fantastic as the movie gets, it is all believable within the context of the narrative. Uh, I don't buy it. Uh, not not quite. Like, how do they know the exact geographical location? That's that. That's where I was getting to. They, it explained it in in a deleted scene, and it just doesn't make sense to me. Anyway, let, yeah, let's. That was, that was the only thing. It took me like read, forever to get to it. <laughs> I'm going to read one comment and then we're going to move on to the next topic because this is getting deep. Uh, Cybersonic said Jurassic Park was perfect and all the other sequels have fallen short, but it's dinosaurs and that's cool enough to watch. And that's exactly right. Like, it's, it's entertaining to see a, a Tyrannosaurus look as real as they can make them look nowadays. And even back in 93, they looked fantastic with the animatronics. Seeing that on screen and watching these dinosaurs wreak havoc is really all we're asking for as far as a Jurassic Park movie goes. I think uh, being somebody who's super biased and a super shill for Jurassic Park, that that's my two cents on that. Shill. <laughs> so the, next, shill. the next topic, I don't know if anybody in here is uh, super fans of Game of Thrones, but they dropped a little like 10-second snippet where... Uh, the, Arya sees a dragon. Arya sees a dragon, baby, and her face is like, oh, hell yeah. Get him on. <laughs> hey, it would you to introduce yourself, sir? Oh, hi. I'm Caster. Hello, Matthew. Hello. Uh, so I saw that little little HBO snippet, and I am freaking stoked. Uh, dragons are in Winterfell. The Unsullied are in Winterfell. This season, uh, regardless of how you feel about D&D as show writers, uh, this season I'm super amped to see the conclusion of this story. And I think I'm hoping with my purest of purest hearts that J.R. Martin uh, guided them for this last season to make sure that everything he actually, uh, he gave up. God uh, damn it, Matt. (laughs) He stepped away once uh, they started diverging from the books because he didn't want to be influenced by the show. So they, you know, he handed over his outlines, but they're not like, you know, very detailed. They, they have like the big moments for how he sees the story playing out. But from basically season six on, it's been all Benioff and Weiss kind of making up the story as they go. So it's not Martin's vision. Uh, you don't past, think he, past, he had a guiding same. hand in the overall plot and the overall ending of the show? No, no. He, uh, you know, basically outside of the plot points from the outline that he handed over to them, like he told them how he, he's going to end it. Um, but the details of how they get there, like for instance, the dragon being resurrected by the Night King, like that was not something that Martin planned. That was something that the show creators came up with. Um, so uh, basically, Martin's just been ignoring the show, trying to finish Winds of Winter because he doesn't want to be influenced by these other people's. Right. You know, he writing. needs to pick up the pace. Yeah, <laughs> yeah at this point, I don't even think he's going to complete it. <laughs> Probably not. Yeah. Isn't there? He has a, uh, a like a protege, right? That he kind of hands off some of his different work to. That I I feel like they're going to be the ones that's going to actually finish this book. What, like a ghostwriter? 
think it yeah, was kind of, A.G. Riddle who does yeah, the... Yeah, something like that. Where he, anytime uh, Martin finds himself in too deep or he has writer block or something, he kind of passes the buck off to this other guy who finishes no, up. Doesn't, oh, well, that he, must be nice. Well, he doesn't employ ghost writers. Like, he, he writes stuff, but he had this... Um, this other writer, A.G. Riddle, uh, that's not his real name, but uh, he basically has kind of, you know, been shepherding him uh, with his, with the guy's own series. And it's widely believed that should Martin pass away before he finishes this stuff, this is the guy who's going to step in and finish the book series. So, so yeah, he's a... Uh, Martin doesn't pass uh, stuff off. That's why it's taken him so long to do this. So What's should up? I... Should I assume, Matt, that you are not holding out much hope for this final season? Well, you know, it's funny because I, the books are such a favorite of mine. Like, they're the only books that I've ever read more than once. Like, I've read these books multiple times, and I, I was a big fan of them way before the show came about. Um, and when I started watching the show, I just I would get so angry because they'd make so many changes from the books that they didn't need to change. And it's kind of funny because as they like, as they got to the point where the books are over and they've kind of gone off on their own way, I've actually enjoyed the show more because I don't have anything to compare it to. Right. But, but that being said, the writing is just, it, it, it varies from, from okay to very bad in my opinion. Hmm. So I'll be interested to see how they wrap up the, the, the show. But in, in my humble opinion, um, it's not the true ending to the series. I'm going to be waiting for Martin to put out the books. Right. Yeah, I think that's that goes without saying. I think Martin's going to have a different because, like you said, the the divergence has gotten more through the seasons. I, from what I understand, the season one is basically like the full book, the full full oh, yeah. book. It's, it's a textbook translation, dude. Like straight out. I remember yeah. I read the book after I saw season one. And that's what got me to read the book. And it was just like, damn, I might as well be reading the script of season one, essentially. Oh, it made a lot of tiny adjust- adjustments. Um, yeah, very small. Well, it, it varied. <laughs> but, uh, you know, for the most part, the first three seasons followed the books very closely in terms of, like, the overall structure and stuff like that. And then they start kind of going in their own direction around the time that they start translating books four and five uh, concurrently. And then by the time they hit season six, they were just completely off book. So yeah, you can you can kind of tell by the tone of the series that there was some sort of divulgence from definitely like well the characters. I feel like there's a different tone from seasons one through three and the rest of the series. Yeah, like, but like you just just kind of feel it. For and instance, you, in the books, uh, Catherine Stark comes back to life as a zombie. Yeah, and she, 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 she has a big I'm role. Actually, I'm actually kind of pissed that they didn't do that because Lady Stoneheart, from what I understand, is a freaking awesome character. Well, she's she's definitely an interesting character. Like we haven't seen much of her in the books, um, but you know, she she kind of came back at the end of book three in a very powerful way, and the the show just completely just scrapped that storyline and yeah. and so well, like. Like they've made a lot of small decisions that have greatly affected the narrative, and this is all stuff that Martin's going to be tying into the ending of his books. So it, it's it's a big question as to you know how closely the end of the show is going to adhere to Martin's initial vision of how it's supposed to end. So let me ask the group a question real quick. Kester, we'll start with your answer, and then we'll move to Matt and proper Jeremy. Uh, 
when it comes to taking a source material like uh, the Game of Thrones books, which are extensive and they have a huge backstory and translating them into a show that you want the general audience to be into, is it acceptable to take some liberties and to maybe change some things to make it more palatable for people or for television? Or is that like an absolute no-no, you should strictly do it by the book and follow as much as possible? Well, the question's a bit flawed because it's not, it's not necessarily a question of whether it's acceptable or not because it's an inevitability. You're dealing with two vastly different mediums. Like the, the advantage with a series like Game of Thrones versus making it into like one, two and a half or even three hour film is that the series gives them a lot more chances to dive into the deeper minutiae of the book. So they have the ability to translate a lot more of the book and all of its smaller storylines and character beats into the actual series. But there's still going to be some changes made to it in terms of, you know, improving the overall pacing, in terms of, you know, some characters that might actually be superfluous to the greater plot, which, yeah, you know, they might be, okay, uh, uh, shoot, what's his name? Um, From Lord of the Rings, Tom Bombadil. So, minor character affects nothing beyond basically the one chapter he's in in Fellowship of the Ring. Fan favorite, from what I understand, my friend loves that character. (laughs) <laughs> completely omitted from the books or uh, the movies, I mean, right. And totally took him out and it affected nothing. And so it's an inevitability that they're going to have to change some things in order to make it work overall for a show or a movie or anything like that. Now, the degree to which they make those changes, that's a bit more nuanced, but I would say that as long as they keep the major character and plot beats as close as possible, then minor changes to those stories are acceptable in my opinion, as long as it's done in the interest of trying to, you know, trying to keep the story, you know, at a brisk pace so that it doesn't get boring and people, you know, tune out because it's just taking its sweet time. Right. All right, Matt, how do you feel about that? I think it's a tightrope that uh, it can be difficult to to walk because I, I think he was right when he said that, you know, um, adaptations, they, as long as they're faithful to the spirit of certain things, can weather certain changes. But, you know, you have to understand that when you're adapting something, there's a, there's a fan base for the source material that you have to cater to, to a certain extent, because if you change something, uh, the people who aren't familiar with the source material won't mind it, but that the fan base might, you know, reject it outright. Right. So, you know, it's always hard to, to walk that, that fine line between the changes and being faithful because, you know, I, I like to point to the Harry Potter, the first Harry Potter movie, for instance, uh, that was a very faithful adaptation of the book and it was boring because of it. Like a lot of, yeah. A lot of people who read the book, like myself, went in and watched that movie, and it was like, oh, my God, it's so boring. I know exactly what's going to happen. But then, like, you look at something like Percy Jackson and the Lightning Thief, which yeah. wasn't an, a great ad- adaptation at all. It, like, it totally went off in its own direction. And I was like, why did they change so much? <laughs> like, I wish they had kept it closer to the book. So you, you kind of have to – you kind of have to a- adapt stuff within the confines of, number one, like, logistical – considerations but number two uh creative considerations so the logistical considerations are like in game of thrones instance they have to cut out some of the characters from the books because they just can't afford all these actors to 
you know, be put in this show that you know, right. were books. And there were certain things like, for instance, the Kingsguard armor in the books, it's pure white, but they couldn't get the enamel to get that pure white look for the show. It just wasn't physically possible to dye that armor pure white. So they had to go with like kind of a gold with like white enamel like decorations on it or whatever. I don't know. I know a couple of cosplayers that argue that point. <laughs> <laughs> well, from what I remember when the first season, because I remember when the first season was coming out and I was looking at promo stills, I was like, what the hell? Why, why aren't they doing the, the white armor? And uh, I think it was on westeros.org where they kind of got on there and explained, you know, why they, why it wasn't looking exactly like it was in the books. But I mean, what the point I'm trying to make is there are certain logistical like yeah. things that just aren't physically possible to do when you're adept making adaptations. And Especially I actually think, fantasy. yeah, and I actually think that when you're adapting source material, you have to stay faithful to the the stuff that the fans love in the source material. But you also need to make certain changes creatively just to make it interesting to to keep it you know, from being a straight adaptation because straight adaptations tend to be very boring. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's a, it's a juggling act. It's very hard to do. Yeah. Well, from somebody who I've never had the chance to read the books, I really want to, I think probably once season eight comes out, I'll, I'll go and grab uh, the game of Thrones books. But uh, just from somebody who I came in, I think in season five, I think was the first season that I watched uh, season six was the one that was, I actually watched it with everybody else when it actually came out. So I'm coming in this late. I'm not really a huge fan as far as like, uh, I don't have a history with the franchise or anything. So going in, I was like super stoked. I I didn't really notice any of the major issues that some people had with uh, season six, season seven. I could tell that they were really rushing the story. I think that was one of the faults of that season where people were getting places that were just unfathomably fast. Uh, the story was really, really rushed. And I feel like they were trying to get to a point so that season eight could be the, the ending as if I, I think season seven probably could have been uh, stretched out a little more. They could have season eight and then season nine would be the ending. But I think they were in a rush to get this over with, which is the, uh, so far that's the main complaint that I had about season seven. Some of the character changes, uh, Tyrion, uh, I, I felt like he was—he's diminished a lot. His—he's uh, not as clever as he used to be. Like season four and five, they're off book now. <laughs> what was that? They're off book now. All of Tyrion's best stuff came from George Martin. Yeah. yeah. And now that Benioff and Weiss are doing it on their own, they're just not as good of writers or as clever as Martin is when it comes to handling this character. That's a damn shame because Tyrion's, Tyrion's probably my favorite character. Quick question, Matthew, since you've read the books, because uh, I don't remember what season it happens in, but the trial where Tyrion does his wonderful little tirade where he's all, if I had poison, I'd feed it to the whole pack of you. Was that mm-hmm. f- from the books or was that something they did for the show? No, that was in the books. Um, but the the trial of Tyrion, so that, that happens in book three, Storm of Swords. Um, his trial is so much more heartbreaking in the the books because it really shows the extent to which his family is turning against him and the people that he he loved and trusted uh basically are throwing him to the wolves and like you get to hear his inner monologue as he's watching all these false testimonies against him and stuff like that and you, you get to see him slowly break down um and and just like his pure anger and hatred of you, you know basically he was on trial for being different from his family and um, 
like he he realizes this and he just he's so powerless in that moment that he lashes out in the only way he can and it's 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 a very powerful scene um there's so many scenes in the books that are just so much more poignant and powerful than they ever were in the show and i was really looking forward to seeing these moments come to life and um they just never quite captured well some of them did like the red wedding for instance Oh, uh, but that would that would be difficult to screw up. I would think. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't put it past Benioff and Weiss, but um, the, I mean, like they're just they're all these like uh, for instance in the book when Ned Stark died, the book did a really good job of setting up this idea that Ned Stark was going to go to the Wall and and meet up with John once more and kind of lead the Night's Watch because um, Martin was very careful to like lay the groundwork for that. And then when he gets beheaded, it was such a shocking moment. Um, when when I, like I literally had to put the book down and walk away because I just I didn't see it coming. And so that's wait, how did, I, he sub- did he subvert expectations correctly? <laughs> yes, he certainly did. What does uh, this have to do with Nam, Walter? <laughs> uh, no, I, I was. I mean, I was blown away by that. I mean, as somebody who'd never read the books, when when they killed off Sean Bean, I was like, "Are you freaking kidding me?" I'm like, "Who's this show going to be about now?" Well, it's Sean no Bean, though. Yeah, but I mean, he's got to fight that cliche sooner or later, right? <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because I remember when I when I was first reading the books, um, I thought I had the exact same thought because Ned Stark was really set up as like your quintessential fantasy hero. He was like the noble knight. He was the guy whose word was his bond, and he was the guy that you were rooting for. He was the, you know, the quintessential fantasy hero. And so when George R. R. Martin killed him off, that that basically communicated to the reader. I know I wasn't the only one who had that emotional reaction to it, that this was something very different from what we'd seen before and what we were expecting. And from that point on, uh, the narrative branches off like heavily onto all the kids and Daenerys and Tyrion. And so like all, all of a sudden you're like, wow, this has multiple heroes in it and multiple villains and you don't know who you should be rooting for. And that made it fascinating to continue reading. Like I read, I got into it um, back when storm of swords came out the third book in the series. And so I was able to read through all three of those books back to back, like nonstop and they're big books. And by the time I got to the end of storm of swords, I was like, this is the greatest book series I've ever read in my life. And since then, I've just been waiting patiently for, for the next couple of books to come out. So, so moving finish on, we'll, the damn books, Martin. God, I don't. I don't even read them, and I'm like, yeah, finish it, so I can pick up the whole set. Well, uh, I will. I, I will say this, salty. From everything I've heard, even from diehard lovers of these books, uh, Feast for Crows is allegedly. I have not gotten to it myself yet, but allegedly, it is one of. It is a very difficult book to slog through in terms of its pacing. Well, uh, I can tell you having read that book that because all of your favorite characters like Tyrion and Jon and Daenerys aren't in it, it's kind of a strange book in the series in the sense that it, it focuses on characters that, you know, people didn't have a lot invested in. And when I first read it, I didn't, I, I'd agree with you that the pacing felt off and it felt a lot slower and I didn't really care about it as much. But after reading it multiple times, it, it gets better with each read through for me. And that's because I, I start to notice like things that I 
didn't notice before because maybe I was bored or like I wanted a different character or whatever. Um, but it's, it's actually, especially when you read it in tandem with, um, with dance with dragons, uh, like there's just so much more. And like, I would have, I really would like to see a volume where they take, uh, those two books and combine them in the way that Martin originally wanted them published because he had to separate the storylines for those two books because it was just too big. So he decided to basically tell a complete story for certain characters um, in each book rather than have it be expanded across like multiple books. So you only get like a certain, uh, certain uh, story from, you know, like a third of everyone's story as opposed to all of, you know, a certain person's story. Oh, that's right. Cause it was supposed, that's right. Cause dance of dragons is, the same storyline roughly as Feast for Crows, but just starring different characters and their perspectives. Basically uh, Dance with Dragons covers the time period for Feast for Crows concurrently. And then at a certain point it goes past where Feast for Crows ended. Um, So it's, it's kind of like they were originally supposed to be one book, um, but Martin had to separate them into two because he couldn't get all the storylines for, uh, Tyrion and Danny and John finished in time to, you know, put it together with the the story, the point of views from Feast for Crows, and also because um, it just would have been too big of a book. Like it would have been something like two, three thousand pages. So damn, yeah. You know. So we're gonna segue into another beloved book franchise that has been brought to life on screen: uh, Lord of the Rings, the official Lord of the Rings. Amazon Prime uh, Twitter account tweeted out a picture of a map of Middle Earth with the with the quote nine for mortal men doomed to die. So I think this might be them trying to hint at what their storyline is going to be. Um, I've heard rumors that it's going to be an early Aragon Aragorn uh, series. So he's about eighty something years old uh, during the events of the Fellowship of the Ring. So he has a long life, a long history that we could explore and. Uh, this little quote was very interesting because it was part of a, a part of the opening sequence to um, to the movies where they were talking about nine for mortal men. Uh, so many, how many was it for elves and three, and three, three for three. elves and one to rule. Anyway, seven yeah, for the dwarf lords. Where's my nerds? Come on, nerds, finish it off for me. <laughs> I just said seven for the dwarf lords and seven then nine and, three and nine. Okay, so we have those. So. I think this show might focus more on, on the mortal men side. So these are the people that became the wraiths, uh, the ring race. So I'm looking forward to this show. Do you guys have any inside information about maybe who's producing it? I, they're, they're keeping this so under wraps. I'm really surprised they're not trying to amp up some anticipation for this yet. Well, I mean, as far as, as far as trying to build up hype, when you consider that Lord of the Rings is Basically, I know some people will, you know, disagree with me on this. I consider it the second best film trilogy of all time, obviously behind Star Wars because I'm biased. But <laughs> I mean, when you're trying to follow up something that, you know, had as much impact on just, you know, the pop culture sphere cinema in general, I mean, Lord of the Rings basically created an entire generation of film buffs that just wanted to know more about the filmmaking process because of all the behind the scenes stuff they included with the, uh, the DVD releases with it. So it created an entire generation of people that had a greater appreciation for the medium. So something that big 
is really tough to follow. So I'm well, not what's up? I don't know. I agree with you. They have some definitely big shoes to fill, but you also have the Hobbit trilogy, which was uh which was a, a very much a lesser of the actual uh Fellowship of the Rings trilogy. Yeah, uh, but that was also the team that did Lord of the Rings though. So in a way you've kind of got more of a forgiving tone from a lot of it's like you know, George Lucas did the prequels. A lot of people hated it. Well, now we've gotten the sequel trilogy without George Lucas and people like, please give us back George Lucas. So I think so. I think the people behind the show are keeping it close to the vest because they don't want names floating out there because then people are going to look up what these, you know, the the producers, the directors, the writers, whatever. They're going to look at what they've done before and they're going to prejudge it almost immediately because these guys are now working on a Lord of the Rings series and maybe they've only ever worked on like a few episodes of CSI Miami or something like that. And people are going to be like, what are you doing? Why are these people in charge of Lord of the Rings at all? So, yeah, well, I think, I mean, Amazon, as far as the money goes, Amazon has a huge investment in this. They spent 250 million just on the rights alone. And then they're dropping a, I think they said a billion dollars over five seasons, which is a massive amount of money. That's basically, the budget for the most expensive episodes of Game of Thrones for five seasons. Yeah, I heard that it was going to be like all told probably around like a $2 billion price tag if, uh, for everything. Yeah. But the thing is, is like you have, you have to understand that. Um, so in order to watch this series, you have to sign up for Amazon prime, which is their subscription service. It's like hundred bucks a month or a year. Um, and that also has, you know, added benefits in, in their shopping system. So it's basically a way to get people into their subscription funnel. Right. Um, in addition to that, Amazon is also going to have uh, uh, rights to all the Lord of the Rings licensing. So like they'll be creating, you know, all types of, you know, ancillary materials, you know, clothing, mm. uh, games, uh, oh. you know, Time. animated hobbit show I'm watching yeah. the show and like there's like a little snippet on the corner of your screen saying order this vest on amazon prime right now <laughs> yeah. Yeah. i mean there's, there's gonna be, hours. they're going to license the crap out of this thing so heavily that they're going to make that two billion dollars back probably within the first two years so i i'm not surprised that they're willing to spend that much money on it because it's like the, the license just sells itself. Everyone hears there's a Lord of the Rings show on Amazon. They're going to go watch it. Yeah. And I'm already a member of Amazon prime. They have a bunch of really great shows uh, on their selection, original shows. Uh, their movie selection is nothing to laugh at. And uh, it's super awesome. Just it's well worth the money. So I don't, I don't think people can really complain about being drawn into a subscription. Sure. Unlike, unlike, no, I'll tell you this. Unlike uh, CBS, <laughs> CBS has one show, Star Trek Discovery, maybe a couple other ones on there that people might enjoy, but really that's all you're getting. Yeah, so, that's their only appeal one. Yeah, so for Prime, like yeah, it's a little bit more expensive, but you're also getting like Matt said all this other stuff available to you through that one thing. So it's not just a one one type of service like Netflix or something like one that. One trick pony. Yeah, it's it's a I think it's well worth the money. I would go get Amazon Prime if you guys don't already have it. I already uh, do. Yeah, it's I can't complain. It's awesome. <laughs> Amazon Prime's one of the only three subscription services I have, and I ain't planning on getting any more. Sorry, Disney. You ain't getting my damn money. Oh, they got mine already. They're, they got uh, mine. Really? Oh, you shell. <laughs> God, what's wrong with you? 
Because I got two kids and I like Disney movies, man. What the hell? What am I supposed to do? <laughs> Buy them on disc. One-time purchase. You're done. Nah, I don't know. I mean, there's too much. Disney owns so much, dude. It's everything that I love. It's, yeah, I know. They own your entire childhood and they're going to market it back to you now for a pittance. Congratulations. From what I hear, though, it's only going to be like six bucks a month. So it's way, it's like half the price of Netflix. Anyway, so is anybody, are you guys looking forward to Amazon? Do you think they're going to mess it up or do you think they're going to do okay? Well, I would say judging on their track record for their original shows, they're probably going to do pretty well on it because everything that Amazon has actually produced in-house uh, in terms of original series I've liked. And uh, like Amazon's the type of people who really give their creators room to do what they want. Uh, so for instance, like the tick, uh, you had, uh, I forget the guy who invented the tick, but you know, uh, he did Ben Edlin. That's his name. So Ben Edlin did the comic then he did the cartoon. And when it came time to do this TV show, like he basically, you know, didn't want to repeat himself. So Amazon just gave him the freedom to do what he wanted. And it was his decision to kind of break that up and, uh, uh, you know, release the first half of the season, then the second half, couple, like months later type thing. So they give their creators a lot of, of freedom to make the type of stories that they want to do. So I'm pretty hopeful. Like I haven't seen anything that I would consider terrible from Amazon. Nothing like Star Trek Discovery level. You know. <laughs> God, I hope not. I think it'll be decent. Uh, the next thing I wanted to talk about, which was actually pretty big news that I think really got overshadowed by the whole Captain Marvel bullcrap. Um, Ezra Miller Soccer. did. <laughs> Ezra Miller did a, a, an interview. I think it was in China or maybe Japan for a different movie that he was in, um, and he kind of spilled the beans on what the future of the DC universe may look like. Um, of all the people that we've talked about so far, I think he's the only one that's really opened up about it now. I have to take it with a grain of salt because it could, it's just an actor talking. So it could mean, Is that a pun? <laughs> I'm not trying to be a stupid pun guy, but yeah, sure. Why not? <laughs> Jesus. Um, anyway, it could just be an actor talking in an interview, or it could be something that he actually has knowledge about. Uh, I'll read the quote to you guys. Uh, in an interview, he said, uh, when they asked him about the future of the flash movie, he said, we're talking about sparking a whole new universe. It's not just the DC multiverse. It's the speedster multiverse. And oh, the God. are the ones who connect all the pieces of it. So Marvel is a universe, and it's a world with all these same characters in it. DC is a multiverse. All these different stories with different realities, different characters, and different visions. Uh, and the speedsters are the ones who connect and move through all of them. Ugh. So... That's a very interesting quote to hear because we've all, I mean, I've heard rumors that they're trying to do some kind of a flashpoint uh, flash movie to try to right the wrongs that DC has, has kind of wrote itself into a corner with losing Ben Affleck and the la uh, um, uh, justice league did a horrible, horrible job of, of continuing the franchise. So I think this might be a clue as to what their plans are doing, especially with um, Joaquin Phoenix's Joker seemingly being completely unconnected, which maybe there is a connection to it. Maybe they're going to do a Flashpoint version with uh, when instead of Thomas Wayne dying, Bruce as a child dies and Thomas becomes Batman. And then in a different movie, they might connect that some other way. So what do you guys think? Are you excited for that? Do you think it's going to be good? Or do you think this is just bullcrap DC? 
Two things. First of all, Flashpoint doing that this soon is unnecessary. They could very if Aquaman is proof of anything, they can easily course correct what they have now and make something at least decent out of it. It's going to take a little while, but like I said, Aquaman has proven that they are still able to course correct without going full bar Flashpoint universe reboot thing. And second, the idea of all these interconnected universes with completely separate storylines for the characters and everything else. I mean, you look at what you look at how critics can't even seem to follow the basic storylines of something like Alita Battle Angel. I read several critic reviews where they were talking about how, oh, yeah, there's. There's all these world-building elements that kind of don't make any sense, or there's things that happen. I haven't watched the movie yet myself, so I can't judge those criticisms based on that alone. But I've read criticisms on so many movies where they make the same exact argument of, it's too confusing, and then I've watched the movies, and I'm like, how is this confusing? It was very straightforward. They practically spelled it out and held your hand while they did it. So trying to make a multi-layered interconnected universe with multiple universes within it and all this other stuff that admittedly DC comics is very well known for. I mean, it's, you're just asking for massive audience confusion from doing something like that. I don't see how that's going to be something that they can very easily market because, you know, like with the MCU people were invested. They've had 10 years of a consistent universe with different characters in it to, and they've had 10 years of multiple movies with all these different people to get invested in it. And it's paid dividends. Look at infinity war. They broke 2 billion with that Endgame. I will be surprised if it doesn't at least get near the 2 billion mark with that one. So there's something to be said for a consistent contained universe that, I mean, you can have little mini adventures, you know, like do the Crisis on Earth 2 type thing or something like that. Like have a mini adventure in one film or even a two-parter like what they've done with Infinity War and Endgame. And you can still do stuff like that. But to have all these, basically just all these separate threads that are just so far spread out into all these different areas where you're going to have multiple storylines and backstories for the characters and all that stuff to follow. That's just, I I don't see that working out very well at all. Okay. Matt, what are your thoughts? Well, the first thing you have to understand is that the whole kind of crossover strategy uh, that DC kind of launched this, this new version of their universe with uh, came from Zack Snyder he was the brainchild behind this whole, we're going to start with the team up and then we're going to branch out into individual movies type thing. And now that he's gone, uh, Warner brothers is kind of shifting their strategy to focus more on standalone films. Mm -hmm. So this idea that there's going to, that they're going to go back to crossover, I don't think is accurate because I think the, the guy who was really kind of advocating for that strategy is now gone and um, they've seen a lot of success with their standalone films like Wonder Woman and Aquaman. And I, I'm guessing Shazam is going to do really well as well. So um, if, if they do go forward with a Flash movie, they may do something about like crossing over into different timelines or something like that because that's just part of the Flash mythos. Um, but I seriously doubt 
that they're going to be going back to this like kind of crossover team up thing. I think they're going to try and keep everyone kind of isolated in their own stuff. And maybe eventually once all the characters are established, um, they'll kind of pull an Avengers thing and kind of build up to bringing them back together because they already got burned with the strategy of, you know, crossover team ups uh, to start things off with. And I know that they've kind of been floundering with the flash in the sense that they've gone through like three different directors. And originally it was going to be, you know, um, uh, Snyder's vision was flashpoint, which was the whole reason for flash kind of like showing up in uh, Batman v Superman, you know, kind of setting up, you know, his time travel ability and stuff like that. But I, I think that because of the disappointment of the justice league and, their contract negotiations with Cavill not going well and Ben Affleck stepping away. I think that they're trying to set things up so that a lot of this stuff is standalone. I think that the Joker movie was a direct response to wanting to get away from what they had established in um, Suicide Squad, another Zack Snyder uh, idea. And so like the, the standalone Joker movie, I think is going to be more setting up the Matt Reeves standalone Batman film than anything else, because basically you're going to have the Joker movie. You'll have the Matt Reeves young Batman movie. And then eventually you're going to have that young Batman versus that Joker. And that will be like the big dark Knight, big DC movie event type thing when that comes out. Um, But yeah, I don't see them kind of following. I'm sure that when Ezra Miller said that, that was the plan that Zack Snyder had explained to him back when they were doing justice league and stuff like that. And he probably hasn't heard that it's changed, which is why he said that type of thing. Um, but I can guarantee you that the people at Warner brothers are definitely not going to go that route. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's like you said, it's, it's, they, they've had, like you said, uh, Aquaman did has done good. Wonder Woman did good. Hopefully Shazam blows Captain Marvel out of the freaking water with if there is any justice in this world. But yeah, it's yeah, what Matthew said basically is the most sensible thing here is that they could go they needed to build them up before they did Justice League. I right. mean, I can't whatever Snyder was smoking when he came up with this idea of, hey, let's do the team up movie and then the individual movies, it's like, no, it's it's like you just wanted to do the opposite of what Marvel did because he was hoping maybe that there would be enough of a novelty to bring people in early and get them invested early. But it's like, no, the reason Avengers worked was because you had, what, the the four or five, maybe six movies beforehand that built up to it. And yeah. so you you had a pre-invested audience and that paid that paid off in the end and it's continued to pay off. So it's spend time setting up the characters right. before you can jump into the action for the team up. And yeah. that was the, probably one of the biggest issues when it came to um Justice League was like they spent so much time they had to set up Aquaman, they had to set up Flash, yeah. you know, they had to set up Cyborg, they had to set up all these characters and spend time doing that rather than just getting to you know the meat of the crisis uh and and that really kind of drag the movie down right and plus having steppenwolf yeah man i think you're 100 percent right i think they are probably leaning more towards on doing these individual movies which which i think is a good thing but i also i want to push back on something a little bit i think i think they want to keep this flash uh multiverse thing kind of in their back pocket 
as a uh, if you want to do something, if somebody has a good idea for some kind of a crossover, we can implement this card and say, okay, we have a flash card, and we're going to use this to get our two characters that we want to get together. Oh, get together. Like, if you look at it, the, the whole Flashpoint thing could be the next big crossover movie right. in the sense that you, know, you have a huge hit with Aquaman, you have a huge hit with Wonder Woman, and the flash could be, Flashpoint can be the thing that connects those two together because you know in the real in the comics flashpoint like it was all about the battle between Atlantis. Amazon. yeah Gal Gadot versus jason momoa i will pay money to see that yes <laughs> the thing is is like i don't think they would use that for the flash standalone movie i think that they would do a you know standalone film to establish flash as his own character like they've done with these others and right. maybe that would be the build-up to that next big crossover and shazam would take the the role superman played in, in yeah. the comic and stuff and, and like a, a flash movie like maybe to what uh, Ezra Miller was talking about a flash movie could be what establishes these multiverses where maybe it's his own movie it's his own thing they don't have anybody else in it but he realizes that he now has the power to cross between these yeah. multiverses and meet other speedsters from different universes and that, I mean, they could set up this whole thing around flash and then in the future if they want to bring in Army Hammer and Joaquin Phoenix as the Batman versus Joker they somehow could tie in the flash with that and kind of go, uh, I, I think they, I think they want to be able to use that. And I think they, they want the best of both worlds. They want the yeah, team. I, up. I think that was a Zack Snyder idea for the multiverse. I think that it's too confusing for general audiences. If anything, it would be like an alternate timeline type thing, but it would only be like one alternate timeline where the flash would have to like, you know, get back to the original timeline by the end of the movie um, but this whole concept of multiverse, it, it works in the comics because like you can take your time and establish this stuff in the comic books. But in terms of like a general movie going audience, like the whole multiverse thing is just, it's, it's way too, it's going to take too much time and effort to explain and make it not confusing. So I, I seriously doubt they'll go in that direction. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. They want to keep it simple. So maybe just do one alternate timeline that I can see I, that. I, get, I, I agree with you, Salty, that they would probably implement the Flashpoint idea as like a pull, you know, pulling the parachute if the solo movies and all that stuff doesn't pan out like they were hoping. Or even, uh, you know, maybe if it's it's like a last ditch effort to try to save something, but I think they might want to use it just as uh, as like a hey, let's get some get some. Uh, excitement around our franchise again by once they like you said well like you guys said once they get everybody else established and then kind of go like with the avengers thing like okay now we're going to have them all together and this is how we're going to do it we're going to use the flash and this is his power that he can use and real quick i want to address the the comments we got jack osborne uh thank you for joining us sir he says you have a criminally small viewing audience (laughs) the stuff you guys are saying is very insightful and i enjoy every second of it keep up the good work thank you very much sir i appreciate that please subscribe you can follow me on Twitter at Salty Nerd or Instagram at Salty Nerd Podcast. And uh, you can follow Kester on Twitter, too. What's your uh, tag, Kester? Uh, at Zemnus444. Don't ask. <laughs> and Matt, yours is? At Matthew Kadish. All right. There you go. So you can you can follow us on Twitter if you want. Uh, I appreciate the comment, sir. Thank you very much. I hope you come back for another episode, Jack. Um, yeah, anyway. It's the first D- time I've ever been called insightful. I don't know what to do with myself now. <laughs> uh, you're blushing already just a little bit you get used luckily, to it luckily it's cold outside <laughs> matt's like people call me insightful all the time <laughs> <laughs> i post articles i'm so insightful <laughs> oh. 
I'm looking forward to reading. I really am looking forward to reading that. I, I know what I said before. I, I come off kind of sarcastic sometimes, but I'm, I'm really looking forward to reading that Just Star a Trek. Little. Just a little bit. <laughs> it's like saying I come off slightly snarky. I mean, come on. Oh God, you're such a dick sometimes. <laughs> oh yes. Happily. Uh, all right. Anyway, so enough of the DC nonsense. We kind of got that out of the air. Um, Detective Pikachu. Anybody see the new trailer for that? I've not I have seen not trailer yet, but the oh, old yeah. trailer is really good. So yeah, the old trailer was really good. I'm not a Pokemon person. I never grew up with it. I didn't have a car. I, I never watched the cartoons. And I have to say, this trailer makes me want to go see this movie. And I have absolutely zero background with Pokemon. So that that in itself says something. I was I always thought that I was going to have a hard time separating Ryan Reynolds from Deadpool, especially if I'm hearing his voice coming from Pikachu. I'm like, oh, that's just Deadpool playing a prank on somebody or something like that. Like it, it seemed weird at first, but seeing the second trailer, dude, the action was dope. The freaking characters were funny. The Pokemon looked freaking awesome. And every single time I saw him, I was like, damn, that looks freaking like legit. That looks real. Pikachu has hair. Awesome I, I think Detective Pikachu is going to be a sleeper hit, and it's going to surprise a lot of people in Hollywood because I I think that. Number one, you have this uh, this Pokemon audience, who, which is very big. Um, yes, it is. And you know, like I, I was never in, into it, but like I'm into this movie. I, I think especially like like people with kids, especially, are going to really make this movie a big hit because it's going to oh, be yeah. it's going to be one of those kind of um, Pixar esque movies where it has stuff for adults, but it also has stuff for kids but it's also for the fans but it's also for people who don't know anything about it and it just seems to hit all the right marks and i could totally see this movie as being like a huge blockbuster that hollywood's like oh where did this come from and then you're gonna see like a billion uh pokemon (laughs) movies hey i'll say i'll say this much as a longtime fan of this franchise Seeing that trailer, I was I was skeptical too, Salty, with Ryan Reynolds' voice. I was like, oh man, that's going to clash so badly, isn't it? But then I saw the adorable animation on that Pikachu, and I'm like, oh god, take my money now. And <laughs> and the idea, you know how they thought Porgs were going to be the big thing from The Last Jedi, like this big marketing giant? Yep. Watch Detective Pikachu merchandise crush the competition and a year from now, all the kids are going to have plushy Detective Pikachus, and it's going to be adorable, and my inner weeb could not be happier for this. Do we know what studio is producing that movie? Oh, I'd have to look it up. Hold on, let me check. I, I don't am. remember off the top of my head now. I'm like, I don't care. Take my money anyways. I'm going to go see this adorable shit. I don't care. Yeah, keep talking. I'll look it up right now. I hope it's yeah. not. I, I'm trying to rack my head trying to think of it now it's like i remember watching the trailer and just thinking god these pokemon are gonna look horrible and then it was like wait that's actual fur like he has fur like an actual mouse yeah it was just i I was kind of shocked at first i'm like i didn't think they i thought they'd go for like the clean smooth look of like the anime but i i was shocked i want to say it's either a sony or universal film I think it's Universal because I'm pretty sure it's not Sony. I'm almost positive of that one. I, you might be right. I think it's Universal. Sorry, I'm really bad at Google. Hold on a second. <laughs> Hang on. See if I can find it faster. I was honestly shocked that they were even making this movie. To be honest, yeah, yeah. No, like Detective Pikachu thing. Like, like you hear that name and you're just like, ah, oh, this is going to be terrible. Because I remember when I first heard the 
the title, I, I was very unimpressed. But then as soon as I saw the trailer, I was like, wow, the, this one's hitting like all the right buttons for me. So it's, it's Warner Brothers. Oh, it's and, Warner Leg- and Legendary Pictures. Oh, okay. Oh, son of a bitch. So it is. So there you go. I don't know. I mean, it looks like a good movie. Like I said, like I'm, I have zero knowledge about Pokemon, and this movie looks freaking hilarious, and it looks fun, and it's like Caster said, dude, that freaking Pikachu is goddamn adorable. <laughs> uh, I can't get his. It's funny when he was in the cage. Uh, if you guys watch the trailer, there's a part where he gets stuck in a cage with um the the dragon. What's the dragon's name? Charizard. Charizard. Okay, so he gets stuck in the cage with Charizard, and he's supposed to be like in a battle. And he turns around, he has this scowl on his face, and he looks at his trainer, he says, Get me the hell out of here! <laughs> oh, no, I, I, I loved the part where he was just like, Wait, you can, in the first trailer where he's like, Wait, you can understand me? I'm been so lonely. And I'm just like, Okay, Ryan Reynolds was a perfect choice for this. I, that, I'm shocked. Like, apparently, they wanted to have uh, Danny DeVito play that voice at first. He was scheduled to do it, and then he backed out, or something happened, and then Ryan Reynolds took over. Thank God, because Danny yeah. DeVito's voice coming out of that, I don't know. It could have worked. It would have been way, way different, but it could have worked. I think it's going to be interesting if uh, if it is a huge hit. You're going to be seeing all these studios snapping up the rights to all these different Japanese card games, trying to turn them into movies. Oh, my God, Yu-Gi-Oh! could make a comeback. Oh, dear Lord. What have we <laughs> yeah. done? Uh, that's, that is actually a valid worry for me because like you guys said, once, if this hits, if this makes a ton of money, there's going to be so many freaking Pokemon movies coming out. It's not even going to be funny. Like it's all you, you have to consider that in the nineties and early two thousands, when Pokemon was really gaining steam, there were copycats of it in just about every Avenue that they had besides the movies. So yeah, if a live action film hits, Oh boy, uh, it's going to be the Japanese invasion part two. Uh, as long as they make good movies, whatever. But I mean, yeah, it's it's going to get overwhelming pretty quickly if they start pumping out Pokemon movies once, what two two times a year, like Marvel. <laughs> I hope not. Pokemon Cinematic Universe. Oh Jesus! God help me. <laughs> I love Pokemon, but at the same time, I'm like, there's some things you just don't do with it. Sometimes it's okay to have a one-off, like really good movie. Just have one of it and have it be great, and have it just leave it right there. Yeah, I mean, that'll do wonders for their marketing alone, just to have that one awesome movie that all of a sudden the kids are like, Mommy, I want to go see the adorable mouse. <laughs> they could re-release it in 3D two years later. Yeah. <laughs> Friggin' when they invent 4D, where you have the special scratch and sniff thing when you enter the theaters, you can do that too. You can smell the fire as the lizard tries to toast them. <laughs> All right. Well, that's about all I have for movie news. I'm going to open it up to you guys. Is there anything in particular that you wanted to talk about? Well, you took Captain Marvel off the table, so that like took away oh, like 90% yeah. of my topics. I am trying to give people an alternative right now because my freaking YouTube feed is literally just one thing after another. Geeks and Gamers, yeah. Marvel, Ho- Odin's movie blog, Captain Marvel, uh, John Talks. Rotten Tomatoes, Captain Rotten Tomatoes, Rotten Tomatoes. Rotten. I've never seen so many like, Rotten Tomatoes on the screen at once. Like you know, Jesus I'm Christ, actually, people, get over it. I'm I'm actually going to go against the grain there, and I think Captain Marvel is going to be a good movie. I think it'll be okay. Good in terms of quality, probably. Good in terms of its box office, uh, that one. I mean, I'm sure it'll br- more than break even. But as far as it being like a rousing success, like everyone seems to think it'll be, I'm kind of skeptical of that because a lot of the marketing that's been happening with this thing 
has hey. been very reminiscent of hey. Ghostbusters 2016. You We're have not to talk about this goddamn movie. <laughs> you have to consider that it's coming out in March, which is you know not a good month. couple weeks away. And but basically, like it, it's going to be in line with a lot of Marvel's other kind of like yeah. or story movies. So, it, it, like like you said, it's not going to be breaking records. It's not going to do Black Panther money, but it, it, it'll do well enough. Um, that the character will be established. And um, I, I think that the movie will actually probably be very entertaining. So I'm holding out hope for it. I think it'll be okay. I think it'll be as per use for a Marvel movie. But uh, in the comments, TT he said, good day, y'all. He said, what's up, dude? Um, and he said, any word on Hellboy? Uh, Hellboy's coming out in April, I think, right? April 12th, I think. is. They only have the one trailer, haven't they? Yeah, just the one. It was very... Um, which the with the rock music and the off off-handed humor um it looks okay I, i'm i liked the old those were fine this new one looks a little looks bit different but i think it, yeah, yeah it looks, i've never been a big hellboy fan and i don't have much hope for this one so yeah i don't think it's gonna do well i think it'll probably be a, a one-off like i don't think they're gonna do any sequels or anything it's not gonna make enough money but um the first ho- two had an- sorry go ahead I'm hoping it's good. Of course, I I hope every movie is good. Like I never want a movie to fail. I don't understand that mentality from people. If a movie's good, it's entertaining. It does its job. I can go to the movies and have fun. Uh, I think it'll be that, but I don't think it's going to be anything massive that's going to hit the culture and and take off and it's going to be a fan favorite or anything. I think it's just going to be okay. Yeah, the first two had a had a nice balance between sort of the campiness and the, some of the grittier realism you know, that you find so prevalent these days in the comic book adaptations, especially from DC, which I think worked really well for it. Cause it's like, Oh, here you've got a, you've got a, sorry, what's his name? Abe Sapien, the, the fish dude. Oh yeah. yeah. Yep. Okay. So you've got Abe Sapien. Oh, he's a fish man. You know, he's, you know, he does all this weird stuff and his voice actor is clearly not the dude performing all of these really, you know, dexterous maneuvers on screen and all that stuff. But at the same time, then you've got, you know, oh, here's this, uh, for, uh, God, it's been so long, I'm, I can't even remember half the stuff now. Uh, the, Wasn't the actor who played Abe, Abe Sapien the same guy who does Saru? Yes. Really? Yeah. Oh, hot damn. Go figure. He, he does a bunch of work for, um, who's the guy who, Pan's Labyrinth, was that Del Toro? Yeah. Yeah, Benicio Del Toro, no, um, Guillermo Del Toro, yeah. He does a lot of work for him because he has that really lanky, odd body type. So he it works really well with that aesthetic where it's like the the creepy, horror-esque, like disfigured body type person. So he does a lot of that type of work. He does Soro on Discovery. He's he did the fish guy for um for Hellboy. The shape of water. Was that the same guy too? Yeah, that was Guillermo del Toro did the shape of water. Oh god. <laughs> I didn't see that movie. I heard it was horrible. Sapien. So <laughs> Yeah, basically, it was it was his fanfic romance story subplot <laughs> that he couldn't put into the Hellboy movies. ET <laughs> says uh, Ian McShane is playing the father or professor uh, in in Hellboy. Which yeah, he's going to be cool. He was in what, what season was that from Game of Thrones? He did the he was the priest for like two episodes or one episode. Six season six. Are you talking about the high the high sparrow? Yeah. No, 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 no. no. He was the guy who kind of helped the the hound. Yeah. Recover. After he got his butt kicked by uh, Brienne, the guy from the guy from Deadwood, 
the bar owner from Deadwood? Oh, okay, okay. I was having trouble placing his face. I'm like, I recognized the name, and I was like, wait, when was he? Okay, he's in, but, uh, he's in John Wick, John Wick two and three. Mm-hmm. Well, I haven't two. watched any of the John Wick movies. Don't hey, don't you no you don't you start, <laughs> Mister Anti Goonies bullshit. Don't you start with me. Don't you give me that. <laughs> Dude, go see John Wick. It's freaking awesome. <laughs> I will, if I can ever find them on any of my streaming services, I will watch them through and through. But I've just, it's not one of those movies. I'm not too big on the more modern action movies for the most part. Like, you give me the 80s, Cheese Fest, Schwarzenegger, you know, any of those action movies, I am down. But a lot of the modern ones, I they they tend to blend together for me and you know, a little too much. At least the '80s ones were campy enough and have all the awesome one-liners. Wasn't Ian McShane also a Blackbeard in the uh, in the Pirates yeah. of the Caribbean movie? Yes, yeah. on Stranger Tides. That's right, he was. I forgot about that. Him and Sexy yeah. Beast. He was, yeah. really, he was really good in that one. <laughs> that was like his kind of introduction to American audiences. I think was Sexy Beast. I don't think I saw that. Yeah, Ben Kingsley. I wish I had Ian McShane's voice. That would just make me even more irresistible. Hey, Black Angus Reviews uh, is here. Hey, what's up, dude? Thanks for stopping by. Of course he shows up near the end. Yeah, yeah. we were talking about you a little while ago when we were talking about Alita, how you didn't like it because you're a a salty, salty person. (laughs) Jeez, Angus, God. Get with the program. No, I appreciated his take on it. He was pushing back on the narrative that we were just liking it only because it wasn't political, which is a valid, it's a valid concern to have. And I, I appreciated that he brought that up. I always like having contrary uh, opinions put out there. You know, it's it says a lot when people will overly praise a film, regardless of its mediocrity or anything like that, just because it didn't shove identity politics down your throat. I mean, that's that really should say a lot about the current state of entertainment in general. Yeah, me and Matt brought that up. It's like, that's a pretty low standard to have. But unfortunately, yeah. that's kind of where we're at. Yeah, unfortunately. Uh, somebody else in the comment. Oh, great. This is a great question. Uh, what did you guys think, or what do you guys think of the new Men in Black movie? Could it be good? Uh, personally, my personal view is yes, and here I'll tell you why. Uh, I'm not expecting much out of it, but Liam Neeson, Chris Hemsworth, and Tessa Thompson. Chris Hemsworth and Tessa Thompson, I think, are going to have really good chemistry on screen. Uh, Chris Hemsworth always proves his comedic timing. It's, it's hilarious. I love watching him in, in like a comedy type situation. He always knocks it out of the park for me. Tessa Thompson's a really good actress, and Liam Neeson being a badass, like over the you know over the top boss. I think that'll be a lot of fun to see. So I am it not going to defines his career. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to hold it to any kind of crazy standard for narrative or plot or or storytelling or anything. You're just going to see aliens on screen and a bunch of over the top action. I think it'll do fine. Yeah, I'm pretty impressed by the trailer I saw. Um, I think that it's going to probably reboot the franchise in the way that uh, Sony's hoping that you know they'll have another viable franchise which they can run with. And um, I got to say, I think uh, it's pretty obvious by now that Tessa Thompson and uh, Liam Hemsworth, or Chris Hemsworth, have uh, the exact same agent, <laughs> which is why they <laughs> uh, paired into movies together. But they, I mean, they were in Thor Ragnarok together and stuff like that and i think they 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 work well together so it's going to be a good good movie i i hope i'm on the fence about tessa thompson like as far as liam neeson and chris hemsworth go i 
I know pretty much like what I'm getting there, but Tessa Thompson, the only thing I've seen her in that I know of for sure was Ragnarok, which I thought she did fine in, but it's, you know, it's one of those things where I haven't, I haven't seen her, you know, in a more serious role as opposed to a more comedic role. You know what I mean? So I can't, I can't really gauge how well her acting, you know, how, how well her acting range is going to handle something that's a lot more comedic, which I mean, men in black mostly is comedic. It's got, it's got some serious bits in it and some decent action, but it's going to require a lot more comedic timing on her part. So I'm reserving judgment. I think she'll probably do fine, but she's the only, you know, uncertainty in that movie for me, as far as I'm concerned. I think it's uh, with what she did in Ragnarok, you know, she kind of had some comedic stuff and some serious stuff. And from what I've seen of her uh, in TV, I believe uh, she's a good actor. So, yeah, if you want to check out what she's been in, uh, she's been in both Creed movies, or Adonis Creed, and uh, also seen. God damn it, Custer! And uh, you still there? It's all, get, yeah. it's all to you breaking up real bad. Oh, sorry. She's in Westworld. If you guys want to get an idea of what she can do, if she's in that show. That's a pretty in it. Uh, Black Angus mentioned something about Liam Neeson being retconned out of Men in Black a couple weeks ago. Uh, I don't think so. I think that's almost pretty much blown over. People realize pretty quick that something that he felt good about, he wasn't advocating that kind of an action. Uh, he from You're fading out, Salty. We can't hear you at all. Is that... Salty, you what? were fading out. There, Now you're back. Now we can hear you. God dang it, I hate my internet. Uh, <laughs> you you get all Fine. echoey and then you fade away like a bad dream, so. God dang it. All right, let's see. Again, Annihilation, I love it. Okay. Um, we're going to wrap it up since my internet decided to wants to take a shit. So uh, it's been about an hour, <laughs> half to two hours. So uh, if you guys would like to say goodbye, shout out to any channels that you want to say, go ahead. Yeah, just, you know, follow me on Twitter, I guess, if you like the occasional bit of snark. I don't know. Matt, how about you? Uh, they can follow me on Twitter at Matthew Kadish, or they can go on Amazon.com and check out my books on there. I write science fiction. Salty. We can't hear you again. All right, folks, that's a wrap. So uh, our host has unfortunately glitched out on us, it appears. So yeah, for us, guys, thank you very much for coming. Hopefully you can hear all this. Uh, yep, good we night. can now. Enjoy the stream. If you want to go back into it, we had a lot of fun. Uh, thank you guys all. See you later. Later.